How many of you uh, watch game shows or have ever watched a game show on TV? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite game show? American Ninja Warrior. American, okay. I guess that's a game show. Yeah, I suppose Jeopardy. so. Jeopardy. Wheel of Fortune. I don't know. Do, are those shows still on? I think they're still on. Right? Yes, of course they are. Um, so I've got an idea. I've got an idea for America's new hottest game show. It's called The Comparison Show, where the contestants get up on a stage or whatever, and they compare themselves to one another. Maybe by the end of it, they actually like fight to the death or something like that, or I don't know what might happen. Or one of them walks off, runs off the stage crying because they just can't compete. I don't know. Um, actually, that's, I think that's pretty much the... I think that's pretty much the basis of every show on TV, especially all of the reality shows. It's a comparison game. Who's better at this than the other person? I mean, all the game shows, somebody's trying to come out on top. And those of us who are sitting at home watching these poor guys on Jeopardy, and they, and they go, what is such and such? And we go, oh, you knucklehead, I knew that one. How could you be so stupid? Right? We play the comparison game all the time, actually. We play the comparison game because our hearts are full of pride. We say things like, I'm not like so-and-so. Or I'm not like people who do etc. Or... We say, well, I may not have such and such going for me, but at least I've, etc. Right? We play the comparison game all the time. Whether it is that we're, th we're thinking of ourselves, oh, I've got it all together and they don't, or we're saying, They've got it all together. I don't. Woe is me. I'm so bad. I'm so poor. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. Guess what? The root of all of that is pride. The root of all of it is pride. Jesus told a story <laughs> to strike to the heart of our pride. It's found in Luke 18. So I want to invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Luke chapter 18 or if you want to grab a Bible near you it's actually on page 877 um, in the Bibles on your seats so you could turn there as well Jesus told the story to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt Read or follow along with me as I read aloud. Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14. Verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. So notice why Jesus is telling this story. There were some who trusted in themselves. They thought of themselves. They believed in themselves. The lie that my generation was told growing up in the 70s and 80s. Believe in yourself. You've got this. Go for the gold. You can do it. Just do it. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they were good, that they had it all together. And they treated others with contempt. Who was the Pharisee? Who was the tax collector? Jesus said two men went up into the temple to pray. And in Jesus' time, uh, the temple was the focus of religion. It was the focus of their faith. It was the focus of all of their worship. They went up to the temple, which was sitting on a hill in Jerusalem. And everywhere you lived, whether north or south or east or west, or whether you lived on a high mountain or you, whether you lived in a valley, you always went up to the temple. You always went up to where God was. You always went up to where you would be in His presence. And Jesus says there are these two men who went up. And these two men represented two groups of people that were extremely significant in Jesus' days. And the Pharisee, the Pharisees get a bad rap. And even the way we read this story, we go, oh, that nasty Pharisee. I thank you, God, that I am not like the Pharisee. Right? They get kind of a bad rap. The Pharisees were a people that were called Pharisee because the word is uh, originally meant one who was separated from other people or other things. In other words, one who was holy. Somebody who was holy, set apart, who said, I don't want to be like the rest of the world going to the wide path of destruction. I choose the narrow way to salvation. I want my life to be holy. I want God to be pleased with the way I live my life. Does that sound like the descriptions of Pharisees to you when you were growing up in Sunday school or maybe you heard some of these stories? Probably not. We, 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 sang, we sing songs about the Pharisees, about, you know, they're not fair you see or something like that. I don't know. And yes, there's something to that. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were people that, that uh, everybody else thought 
were great people. These, these Pharisees, they love God. And they're serious about their walk with God. They want to do right. They want to be, they, they want to be good. They want to be holy. They are obeying the law. In fact, they're so serious about obeying the law that they've created more rules for their lives just to make sure they don't cross over into sin and do something they shouldn't do. They were well respected. They were extremely influential even though they were a, a, a relatively small group because who could live up to that? To be a Pharisee meant you had to commit your entire life to a certain way. And so it was a small group of people, but they were well respected. The, 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 the common crowd, the, the, uh, the multitudes, the crowds that we read about in the Gospels would have looked at the Pharisees and said, those guys are great because they're really serious about their relationship with God and the fact that they do all of these good things. We would say they're we would maybe say they're really serious about their religion because they believe that by obeying all of these rules just right, that God would be pleased with them, that God would uh, give them salvation. What about the tax collector? The other was a tax collector. And uh, so the tax collectors, they weren't very well respected. And they were a relatively small group as well. There weren't very many who were tax collectors. But the tax collectors were there because the Roman Empire wanted to collect taxes from everybody who was part of the empire. But they knew that in order to do it and make sure that it was done right and done well and that the Roman Empire got what they deserved... They needed people who knew the cultures. They needed people who knew the language of the people they were taxing. So what they did was they identified individuals who wanted a leg up in society. Are you looking for a, a path to, to wealth? Are you looking to rise out of your poverty? Be a tax collector. Join us. Come to a recruiting station nearby and we'll train you how to be a tax collector and you can use your knowledge of your people and of your culture and of your language to make sure the taxes get collected. And so many Jewish people said, sounds good, I'll never make it as a Pharisee, but this tax collector thing, I think I can do this. And so they did. And tax collectors collected the taxes from the people and then they gave it to chief tax collectors and the chief tax collectors then would hand it over to somebody in the Roman government and then those taxes would eventually get to Rome and so the emperor and the senate were doing pretty good there. Right? But the tax collectors weren't very well respected because they were known as people who cheated. They were known as people who said who looked at their books and said, okay, this person owes 10 denarii, but I'm going to ask him for 15. Because that way, I can pocket the other five and make a, make a living and increase my net worth. 
And so that just came, became the common practice for the tax collectors. So the tax collectors were known in Jesus' days to the people that he was speaking to as people who were cheats, that, who were people who were essentially robbers, who were people who were notorious sinners. They were the op on the opposite spectrum of the Pharisees. They were the law breakers. The Pharisees were the law keepers. And Jesus tells this parable about them. And look what, the, look, look what the Pharisee says. He's standing by himself. And he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. That I'm not like the unjust or the adulterers or the extortioners. Or even, particularly like this guy over here, over yonder, the tax collector. Thank you, God, I'm not like them. But the tax collector we saw before, he was standing off by himself, <laughs> a, f a far way off. I think Jesus made, was making a point there, standing far off, far away from the Pharisee, far away from the religious people, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he just beat his breast. He pounded on his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me, or be merciful to me, a sinner. But what did Jesus say? What was the point here? I tell you, this man, the second man, the tax collector, he went down to his house. He left Jerusalem. He left the temple and went down to his house, justified, and we could add, by God rather than the first one. Who was justified by God? It was the tax collector. It was the sinner. It was this knucklehead who couldn't do anything right. This guy who didn't, he wasn't trying to, to keep all of the laws. He wasn't trying to be a good person. The Pharisee, the Pharisee who was was attempting to live his life by God's law. In fact, it says he fasted twice a week. The Jewish people were encouraged to fast once a week. But he said, I'm going to go beyond that. I'm going to fast twice a week. It's like, I'm going to read my Bible in the morning and in the evening. I'm going to memorize five verses a week and not one verse a week. Forget verse of the week. I'm doing verse of the day. Man, I'm good. I've got this down. I give tithes of all, all that I get. In other words, I tithe off of the gross, not off of the net of my income. I tithe off of my bonuses. I tithe when I get Christmas money or birthday money. That's the kind of guy this was. He was good. But Jesus says, he went away unjustified, but the tax collector went away justified. So you see, there are two types of self-confidence. Remember, this, this, is a, this is a parable told to people who trusted in themselves. I would, I would say, I would call that self-confidence. They were confident in who they were. There are two types. There are, there are those who are confident, self-confident in their law-keeping, and then there are those who are self-confident in their law-breaking. Now, these two are representative. This, these, are, these are not all Pharisees, and these are not all tax collectors. 
Because I guarantee you that there were many tax collectors who said, I don't care to be like a Pharisee. There are those goody two-shoes. I'm doing my thing, and I'm making my way in life. And I don't really care if I'm breaking the law. I'm confident in who I am, and I believe in myself, and I'm going to make my way. I'm going to make my money, and I'm going to do my thing. But of course, the Pharisees, and many of the Pharisees, maybe not all of them, because we know that there were Pharisees who came to Jesus and put their faith in Jesus. Some people like Nicodemus. And I don't know if you've read the book of Acts recently, but read the book of Acts and, and check out every time they discuss Pharisees in the book of Acts. It's interesting because many times it's the Pharisees who are defending the, the apostles. It's the Pharisees who are defending the way in the book of Acts. I just thought it was interesting to observe. But the Pharisees looked at other people and they said, I'm confident in myself because I'm keeping the law. I'm not breaking the law. But both of them, a life or self-confidence in our law-keeping and self-confidence in our law-breaking, both of them are deeply rooted in pride, in who we believe we are to be. Andrew Murray, I'm going to give you a few quotes from Andrew Murray, who was a 19th century uh, pastor, and he wrote a beautiful little book that's about, I don't know, less than 60 pages called Humility. And if you haven't read it, I would read it slowly and surely and be encouraged by that. And he said this in regards to pride or, or self-concern, thinking about oneself, and he said this, being occupied with self, even amid the deepest self-abhorrence. Oh, I'm so bad. I'm, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible person. Oh, I never do anything right. Being occupied with self, even amid the deepest self-abhorrence, can never free us from self. We'll never be free from the comparison game that we play with ourself and with other people. C.S. Lewis said something similar to that when he talked about humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Did you catch that? It's amazing how English works. You know, just put a word in a different place and wow. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, Oh, I'm bad. Oh, I'm poor. Oh, I'm terrible. But it's thinking of yourself less. Oh, that's right. I, I do exist. Oh, I, that's right. I'm here. I forgot momentarily. Bless you if you've ever had those moments. <laughs> they don't happen in my life very often. But that's how he described humility. I think that's true. I think that's really true. We have this, we have this um, absorption with ourselves. So how does this help us to, or how then um, should we pray through this? How then should we come to God? Because the title of this message is Humility in Prayer. Humility in Prayer, what does this have to do with prayer? The, the tax collector and the Pharisee, they're both praying to God. They're both going up to the temple. They're both coming into God's presence. And one of them is full of self-confidence and trust in his own righteousness, full of pride. And the other one has debased himself. The other one is humble. The other one is thinking a lot less of himself and a lot more about the holiness and the greatness of God. 
Pride, though, struck at the heart of the Pharisee and caused him to treat others with contempt and also messed up his own relationship with God. Andrew Murray, in another place, he wrote this. He said, and this was an exhortation to his readers, he said, May God teach us that our thoughts and words and feelings concerning our fellow men are His test of our humility towards Him. That's powerful. But then he said this, and that our humility before Him is the only power that can enable us to be always humble with our fellow men. It's a test of, of, our, uh, of, of our humility towards Him, how we treat other people. What our thoughts are towards them, what our words and our feelings towards them are. When we're playing the comparison game, when we're playing the bitterness game, when we're playing the, criti the criticism game, whether it's in our hearts or in our words and actions, it's a test of our humility before God. But then, but then our humility before Him becomes the power that enables us to treat others the way God desires us to treat them and the way we must treat them. And so... Do you see how our pride affects our prayers? Do you see how we come, when we come before God and we say, Lord, meet this need in my life, but we've got deep pride in our hearts towards other, and, and contempt for other people, how he doesn't, he will not listen to those prayers. He will not justify us in our prayers. He will turn us away. Can we pray more like the tax collector? Can we come before God like the tax collector? This message, this passage has been on my heart for four weeks. Because we started this, this summer series on the subject of prayer. We, we looked at the Lord's Prayer and we saw how beautiful it is and how it summarizes a lot of different ways that we uh, address God. And, and in a lot of ways, our, our acts... A model or, or uh, that process of, of praying, uh, praying, the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, are really even modeled in that Lord's Prayer. But we look at that Lord's Prayer, and, and for a lot of us, we, we get a little intimidated. How could I pray like that? I mean, that's Jesus. He's saying, pray like this, and should we just, re maybe the best we can do is just repeat the words, but how do we make that kind of prayer go on in our lives? And how do we do adoration the way God deserves? to be adored and praised and, and how do we confess when, when we're, so, we're so ashamed of our, of our sins and our failures and how do we do that? There's, there's so much pressure and then I thought about this passage and how the tax collector said, God be merciful to me a sinner and I think sometimes maybe we just need to just put on the brakes and step out of the car and say, I know I'm going in that direction, but right now I just need to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And just pray that cry to God. And not worry about whether our words are, are, are accurate or whether our words are full of this or whether our words are full, are full of that. or um, Are we praying the right way or are we praying the wrong way? But just say, God, be merciful to me. We have this beautiful example here of how we, how we are to pray. 
But I think the reason why the tax collector was able to pray like this is because he believed some things. Some, he believed some really significant things. And, and he prayed with, with a certain quality or certain, certain characteristics. And, and I want to give you some four suggestions. And um, I, I wish they were going to be up on the board. They're not, but you could write them down. Um, I, I just want to show you four words, just uh, four words, and, and speak very briefly on them. And, and not, actually, I'll add, I think I'm going to add a bonus too. So four plus a bonus. How about that? So four is good. It's a kind of good round number. But then I'll give you a bonus too. And and it's this. Uh, the words are fear, need, trust, and hope. And, and then the bonus is going to be. Oh, I'm going to wait on that. I'll wait on the bonus. Okay? Pray with intense fear. Pray with intense fear. Look what the tax collector did. Standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. What does that demonstrate? That's the fear of God. The fear of God. The fear of God, not, oh God, don't punish me. I'm going to cower before you. Don't, don't strike me dead with your lightning bolts. But the fear of coming before somebody awesome and being afraid to maybe make a mistake, to do the wrong thing. I remember the first time I walked into a promotion board. And there was some fear there. Not the fear that they were going to kick me out of the army. Not the fear that they were going to make me do push-ups or, or punish me somehow. But the fear that, man, these guys are the top. I mean, this is my sergeant major, and these are first sergeants, and they're going to ask me this, and I don't want to screw up in front of them. That kind of fear. Fear that comes from deep love and respect and, and acknowledgement of the greatness of the one that we go before in prayer. And so pray with intense fear. And the tax collector modeled that and demonstrated that. Do you have that attitude when you come to God in prayer? Even to give him or ask for the simplest things. Does the fear of God uh, penetrate your heart? Do you pray with intense fear? And then secondly, need. Pray with confessed need. I, I didn't know a, what, a, another way to put that. There probably been in many ways I could have put that. But confess need. In other words, we acknowledge our need and our dependence on God. We acknowledge our, our true, uh, the true issues in our lives. God, I need this. God, I need you to help me with this. I cannot get by without you. <laughs> Counselors or therapists point out that this is like the first step in, in solving a problem in your life, is admitting that you have a need. Denial is the first thing to break through. You're talking to someone and as a, as a counselor, as a pastor, as a, as a non-professional um, counselor, I've listened to a lot of people share their concerns with me and I've heard them out and, and, and I want to say, you are living in denial about something. You are telling me all of this stuff. You think the problem is this. You think the problem is that. You think the problem is this. But really, you're denying the heart issue. Uh, I usually don't come out and say that because 
I'm not a professional counselor or a therapist. So, but I would, I, that's sometimes what I, how I feel. But we need to confess what is at issue. What are the real issues that we're going through? And, and verbalize those before God. Know that we're dependent on Him. Know that we need Him. Know that He is the only one who can meet our needs. And come before Him with that kind of attitude. And I think that's exactly what the tax collector was doing. He came right out and said it. God, be merciful to me. Why? I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. That is my need. I have sin in my life. I'm not justified before you. I'm not right before you. I need your forgiveness. I need your mercy in my life. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Pray with confessed need. We have fear, we have need, and, and trust. Pray with submissive trust. Submissive trust. We submit ourselves to God when we pray. We say, God, only you can do what you can do, and I trust you to do it. Have you ever gone into surgery? <laughs> Some of you have. Um, what's your level of trust? I mean, there's, there may be a lot of fear, there may be a lot of uncertainty, but at the end of the day, you have to lay on the table and you, have, and you take the anesthesia or you take the local and you let the doctor, you let the surgeon do his thing. You cannot do it. You can't fix your problem. I remember lying on my stomach the very first time I got an E, uh, what is that? E, I... You know, something, ESI, ESI, epidural steroid injection, something like that, right? First time I'm standing there going, okay, what's going on? And the doctor like, leaned around and he, he said, uh, I just want to show you the needle that we're going to put inside of you. And I said, really? <laughs> and I had to calm myself and I had to be still and, and I just had to let him work and do his thing and trust submit to the doctor that's what we do in prayer the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner and I know that the, the, the trust thing may not be explicit in any one phrase or word but that's the general tenor there he submitted himself to God. He stood there. He looked it down at himself. He beat his breast. He pounded his chest. And he said, be merciful to me. He knew that God had sovereign. He had the sovereignty. He had the right to judge him, to punish him. And he submitted himself to God in prayer. Fear of God, need of God, trust in God, and then hope. Hope in God. Pray with confident hope. How many of us pray hoping, being confident that God's going to answer our prayers? Because there are those times that we've experienced where we've prayed and we've said, God, um, help me with this. God, and grant me this. And what's happened? He hasn't answered that. He hasn't always done that. 
He hasn't always given us what we asked for. He hasn't always done what we want. So how should that encourage us to pray with hope? Hmm. So back in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, right before the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says this, and it's always kind of frustrated, frustrated me actually, because I wonder how that's a justification, how, that's a, how that is an encouragement to pray. Um, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases, he said in chapter 6, verse 7 of Matthew. Empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. The reason, the basis for that is, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Hmm. So, two ways we could take that. Oh, He already knows what I need, so why bother asking Him? Or, confident hope. He knows what I need before I even ask Him. He knows what I need. He knows what I need. And so, when we pray, we pray confidently. We confess our need. We submit our need to God. And then we have confidence knowing that He may not give us what we're asking for. Timothy, Tim Keller in his book on prayer, which I would recommend to you. So there's two books. I've just, I've just dropped two books for you. So put them in your queue and read them. Okay, Humility by Andrew Murray and Prayer by Tim Keller. And in, 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 in commenting on this, this idea, he says, we have confident in, confidence in our prayers because he doesn't always give us what we ask for. Because he knows what is best for us. He already knows what we need, even if we don't ask for what we need. Right? We may ask for something else. We may ask for something different. But we can be confident before God, nonetheless, because he loves us and he knows what we need. He's a good heavenly father and he always gives us good gifts. So I said there was a bonus, right? Fear of God, need of God, trust in God, hope in God. And here's the bonus. Grace. <laughs> Pray relying on grace. Because we don't always know what we should pray. Right? We don't always know how we should pray. And we sometimes worry ourselves that we're not praying the right things and maybe that's why God's not answering our prayers and then that, then that strikes at our hope and, and then that erodes our trust and our confidence and, and then it, it causes us, us to keep our needs to unconfessed and keep them to ourselves and, and then our fear of God starts to dissipate. We need to re be reminded of the grace that God gives us in prayer. The grace that God gives us in prayer, that He allows us to pray because of Jesus and, how, and His goodness and His love for us and what He did for us. This, this parable is a really challenging parable because at the end we go, is, was this man justified simply because he said, uh, be merciful to me, a sinner? If so, let's all pray that prayer and then be justified. 
But that's not what was going on there. It was a heart issue. A heart thing was going on. A heart that was contrite. A heart that was broken. Uh, oh, Psalm 34, verse 18. You'll have to check me on this. But I'm, on, I'm confident, I think, that it says, The Lord, Yahweh, is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's what God does. That's what He did in the Old Testament. That's what He did for the psalmist. And that's what He did for the tax collector. And that's what He does for us because of Christ. Because of Christ. And then the promise at the end, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Many of us want to be exalted. Many of us want to be lifted out of our low places. And so we desire to climb up. And so we're trying to get to here. And we're trying to get to there. And if I read the right books, or if I hang out with the right people, or if I go to the right conferences, or if I'm in the right church, or if I'm in the right small group or ministry, or if I'm serving in the right way, or if I'm reading the Bible in the right way, and I'm praying in the right way, then God will justify me, and, and I'll be where I want to be. I'll, I'll get to that place. I'll get to those heights. I'll get to that level that I want to be at. And Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So it's an interesting thing about water that when you pour water into uh, either a crack in the ground or a tub full of stuff, like say we've got the cooler um, and we've got all this ice, uh, water in there, we throw the ice on it and, get, and the, the ice melts and, and, and then when the ice melts, the, ice, the water doesn't just float on top, right? It doesn't just hover at the top of the cooler. It goes to the bottom, right? And that's what water does. It fills the lowest places first. If you only have a little bit of that water, it's going to go all the way to the bottom. It's going to fill the lowest places first. Andrew Murray again. This was powerful when I read it. The lower, the emptier, I love that word, the lower, the emptier a man lies before God, the speedier and the fuller will be the inflow of the divine glory. The lower we get, folks, the more capacity we have to contain the greatness of God and His grace that He wants to give us in prayer and in every other area of our lives. I love that he said the emptier a man lies because it reminds me of Philippians 2, 6 through 8, who, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being, born, and being found in... In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's verses 6 to 8. His humility, his abasement, he emptied himself. He emptied himself so that God could fill him at his time, in his way. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, right? What is it? Chris, help me out. I'm missing the word. God has highly exalted him. <sighs> And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and, and praise of God, the glory of God the Father. One of those phrases, I'm sorry. God exalted Jesus. Jesus did that too. He's not asking us to do anything he's not familiar with. Nobody ever got lower than Jesus. Nobody ever debased himself more than Jesus. No one dug himself deeper than Jesus. No one emptied himself more than the Son when he came to be a man. And do you want more grace? Do you want more mercy? Do you want more of God? Let me ask you to humble yourself in prayer. Embrace the lowest place. Embrace what God will do through you in that respect. It's not sin, but God's grace. Showing a man and ever reminding him what a sinner he was that will keep him truly humble. The grace that will keep us truly humble. It is not sin, Andrew Murray said, but grace that will make me indeed know myself a sinner and make the sinner's place of deepest self-abasement the place I never leave. Humble yourself in prayer. Humble yourself before others. This is the hardest thing I've ever um, asked you guys to do because um, I need to do it desperately to my wife and to my children and to you all as a church to humble myself and just serve and not worry about my own reputation not worry about the name of this church and its reputation in the community but only worry about God and, and serving Him and loving others in His name. But will you do that with me? Let's pray. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Mm. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Oh God, you have given us so much grace. You have given us mercy. We, we are far below you. We deserve punishment. We deserve your wrath upon us. But because of your son Jesus, you have shown us grace. You have shown us mercy. You do not give to us according to what our sins deserve. But you give to us according to your steadfast love. According to your mercy and your forgiveness. According to the righteousness of Jesus and not anything of ourselves. Lord, I don't know where we are at. Lord, maybe some of us today need to confess and repent before you because we have, we are, we are treating others with contempt in our hearts because we think we're so good. 
there are maybe some of us who are treating others with contempt in our hearts because they're so good. And, and we think poorly of them. Maybe we are rebelling against you. Maybe we would never acknowledge that, but that's the reality in our hearts that we have not committed to you, that we have not turned to you, we have not seek, seek to, uh, sought forgiveness and mercy, we have not confessed before you, we have not acknowledged you as our Savior. And that too causes us to look on others with contempt because we think we're just fine. Thank you very much. Father, maybe some, some of us here have just not been praying. and We're not turning to you. We have not. Uh, we have just abandoned prayer and just said, I, I can't do it. Um, I'm just not a prayer. I don't know. Maybe we need the encouragement of those, these words today. To pray with the fear of God. To pray with our need of God. Pray with trust in God. To pray with hope in God. And, and overall, grace that accompanies our prayers. Whatever it is, God, that you have called us to and are doing in our hearts today, I ask that you will do it in the name of Jesus. For your glory and our joy. Amen. We're going to respond today um, in a special way, and I'm glad we talked about about um, what it takes to be justified, the humility of coming before God in prayer in that way and, and receiving justification, because we have prepared today the table. Um, the bread and the cup, this, um, this ceremony that we do uh, regularly when we gather together to remember the death of Jesus. And um, so we humble ourselves before we come to the table and as we come to the table, realizing that, that, that God is, is with us when we do this together. That Jesus, he said on the night that he was betrayed, um, take this bread, um, take it and, and do this in remembrance of me. And with the cup, he, he did the same. He said, take this cup and do this in remembrance of me. He said, this is my body. And he said, this is my blood. And so... We're going to celebrate in a very serious way with a serious kind of joy the death uh, and the resurrection of Jesus in this table. And then hope. Hope in the, in the feast. Hope in our future uh, of the time that we will share this bread and this cup with Jesus. I don't know how that's going to work. If it's going to be a giant communion um, meal or if it's going to be a, a lot more of a party than that. But when we share that with Jesus in his kingdom for eternity.
And so the way we do this is we invite anyone who's, who is in Christ, who's been baptized uh, into Jesus um, through believer baptism to come forward. Um, we open the table up to people from uh, other churches and outside of this local congregation because we share this together. Um, and we invite you to come and bring your family up and, and take a moment if you'd like to pray before the elements and share it together. Um, we're going to do that. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song. And then you come up as the Lord leads you um, to share this meal. Thank you.